The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The fact is, is that we were able to get some out and the idea that we would now put them in jeopardy and potentially one day even deport them uh, is important to me. And if it was to come to pass, I don't know how any ally in the future could ever look to us and trust us and take us at our word when we said that we're going to have their back if needed. So the current status is this. There is a bipartisan group of senators and, and House representatives, Republicans and Democrats on both sides, that want to vote on this thing. And if it came up for a fair vote, I think it would pass. I'm Bryce Clem, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 15th, 2022. On Monday, the Brookings Institution hosted a panel discussion titled Allies, How America Failed Its Partners in Afghanistan. The event featured a preview clip of Episode 6 of Allies, which is out now, followed by a discussion with an all-star panel. The panel included Shala Ghaffari, the managing attorney for Project Afghan Legal Assistance at Human Rights First. Colonel Steve Miska, who serves on the steering committee of the Evacuate Our Allies Coalition. And Matt Zeller, a U.S. Army veteran and co-founder of No One Left Behind and an advisory board chair of the Association of Wartime Allies. We discuss some of the past failures that led to a situation where tens of thousands of the U.S.'s allies were left behind in Afghanistan. We also discuss current resettlement issues and relocation efforts for those still in Afghanistan or other third countries. In this episode, we presented the event's audio to you. It's the Lawfare Podcast, Wednesday, June 15th, Allies, How America Failed Its Partners in Afghanistan. I'm Benjamin Wittes, uh, Senior Fellow in Governance Studies here at Brookings and the Editor-in-Chief of Lawfare. We're here at Brookings at a Brookings event talking about issues covered in Allies, which is a new podcast series from Lawfare and our partners at Goat Rodeo. This morning, we released the sixth episode of the series, which covers the U.S. withdrawal Uh, from Afghanistan in the summer of 2021 and uh, tells the story of the events at the Kabul airport last August. In many ways, uh, the events of last August were a kind of culmination of the problems that had existed with the SIV program for two decades. And uh, those are problems we are still feeling the effects of today. 
So the clip that you're about to hear is from episode six, uh, and in it you will hear from an Afghan interpreter whom we call Billy, who had applied for a special immigrant visa. In the last days of the evacuation, Billy, the Afghan interpreter, was still waiting on his SIV application. At one point, Billy thought about just making a go of it and heading to the airport. I was in touch with some friends who, who even got the airport passage email from the Department of State. And they went to the airport, and I was following them uh, to see what it was like. But on TV and social media, Billy saw the massive crowds, the Taliban beatings, the explosion at Abbey Gate. And he still hadn't heard back from the embassy about his visa. So he stayed home and waited for an official green light. And I was sure that they won't let anyone without the gate passage until I found out that it was a total miss. And those who pushed and wrestled further in the crowd, even without SIV cases or SIV documents, made it through and were evacuated. And by then, it was too late for me. Billy watched as thousands of Afghans like him packed into flights. But he had done what the U.S. government had told him to do. He followed the rules. So, Billy waited and watched as he got left behind. To this day, he still hasn't gotten any updates on his visa. Billy and his family are in Afghanistan right now, still waiting. He has no idea what the status of his application is and if it's even being processed but he remembers August 30th vividly. That was the day the last American flight left the Kabul airport. You know, I never cry. But that moment, you know, my eyes were just tearing. You know, I'm, I'm a father of two sweet kids and I would look at them and I don't know what will happen because uh, after that, when, when the final flight left, you know, things were like, I don't know how to explain it to you, but it was bad. It was bad. But I'm, I'm, I'm happy that I'm, I'm still alive. So uh, this project was the first major podcast project that I've ever really been able to step back from and not play a significant role in. And that's owing to two things. Uh, one is the remarkable group of partners we have at Goat Rodeo and on this project, particularly Max Johnston. The other is uh, Bryce, uh, our associate editor who conceptualized this project and really operated as our end of the partnership in producing it. Uh, so all thanks to uh, all of you, and, and Bryce in particular. And with that, I'm going to turn things over to Bryce. Thank you, Ben, and uh, welcome, everyone. As Ben said, we'll be discussing some of the past failures that led to a situation where tens of thousands of people like Billy, who had served with the United States, were left behind. As Ben said, we'll also discuss some current resettlement issues and relocation efforts for those still in Afghanistan and other third countries. So that clip that we just heard, as Ben said, is featured in the sixth episode of the series. And a lot of what we witnessed last August had its roots in a struggle that has lasted for more than a decade. So to get us started, 
I want to ask Colonel Miska to help give us the long view. Colonel Miska, you've been involved in this issue for a very long time, since 2006, really. So what were some of the issues that you had been dealing with since 2006 that really set the stage for the events that we all witnessed last year? Thanks, Bryce. The, yeah, this, this is a strategic problem that does not just span current conflict. And uh, some of the research I've done goes way back. And as a matter of fact, some of the best practices that uh, we shared come from, say, Vietnam, or when we evacuated the Kurds, or the Kosovars more recently. And so as I started really digging into the problem, it was clear that we didn't have a lot of policy tools to insulate our soft networks, our closest partners in conflict zones. But we did have the special immigrant visa, and it is a bureaucratic challenge, as uh, many have noted. So our government has struggled to really execute well, even though we do have this one tool. And, And so really, when it becomes a crisis, our immigration system writ large is not suited to hand, it doesn't work function well normally, right? So it doesn't, in a crisis, it's not the tool to go to. Uh, so uh, some of the things that I delved into were interagency task forces that we used in Vietnam, uh, which allowed somebody with presidential authority to manage an intergovernmental effort, really a whole of society effort when it comes down to it. And you can flex that authority where it's needed. So say Afghanistan or or Vietnam uh, under a foreign service officer, and then bring it here to the United States when the center of gravity shifts, when you've got the refugees in. Those are are things that uh, history teaches us and uh, hopefully we can learn from in the future. So Matt and Shala, before we get into current issues, which we definitely will, I wanna ask if you, you have anything in mind about failures, either political, bureaucratic, or structural in the past decade that really led to the situation that we're facing to now? And and Shala, let's start with you. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Bryce, and thank you to Brookings and Lawfare for bringing um, attention to this really important issue. I would actually um, bring us back to the year 2020. Um, Under President Trump, the fact that the Doha peace agreement with the Taliban was signed without any Afghan government presence. And I really want to highlight that. It was a peace agreement between the U.S. government to withdraw their troops and between the Taliban. And the only condition really was that the, it was, uh, the Taliban were, were, were to not allow Al-Qaeda to operate within its territories. There was no plan about how the transition would actually work. There was no promise for uh, a democracy or a semblance of democracy to continue. Uh, no Truth and Reconciliation Commission for the war crimes committed by the Taliban for the past, at that point, uh, nearly 20 years, actually beyond, because the Taliban, of course, have ruled that country for most of the country for uh, a good part of the 90s. And there was no commitment by the Taliban to ensure the rights of women, girls, and uh, ethnic minorities, religious minorities. So I would really bring us back to that date and, and, and for us to really contemplate as to how much of all of this is really a surprise, considering the terms in which um, this peace agreement was signed. Great. And Matt? I mean, everything Shala said is, is, is spot on. I, I think the only thing I would add to that is in the Doha deal, uh, there was a particular provision that required us to pull all of our contractor support to the Afghan military. And 
this harkens back to a decision that was made, you know, almost 20 years ago at this point, which was what would the Afghan military look like? How are we going to train and build a force that was ostensibly supposed to be able to replace us and outlast us? And we decided to build a modern, technologically dependent military, a military in our own image, a military that, quite frankly, could not function without those contractors, which is why the Taliban insisted that those contractors be removed. And all you have to see is the degree to which the country began to collapse as soon as they were gone. Um, I've talked to many members of the Afghan military who would tell me that they'd be, you know, as of July and August last year, they would be in the middle of battles and all of a sudden their air support was just gone. Their radios suddenly didn't work anymore. And it was because the contractors that we had paid to support them and make sure that their military functioned uh, were no longer there. Uh, and I think that's that's a big learning lesson for our country going forward. If we ever going to find ourselves in a similar conflict, a force that we're building needs to be able to sustain itself without our own, you know, constant, uh, basically, lifeline. So last August and really since then, all of you have been working on some different aspects of resettlement and relocation efforts. And Colonel Miska, I want to start with you. You've been working with the Evacuate Our Allies Coalition, as I mentioned earlier. So tell us about that work and really how the group was created and some of the challenges that you've faced since then. Sure. The, the coalition started very quickly after the announcement to withdraw in April. And the steering committee began meeting um, on a routine basis, but then as, as we saw things getting urgent, because most of the work was advocacy to, to try to offer best practices to the Biden administration to get ahead of what we knew was going to happen to our allies. As we saw things start to unravel, that coalition started meeting twice a day. Um, another coalition stood up, started meeting twice a day. And I ended up going to LA and standing up an operations center that was running 24 seven to support both of those coalitions because the, the distress calls that were coming in were just so unrelenting and it was really, really rough. That work continues, Bryce. It's, um, it has not stopped. We're still seven days a week. And I mean, just last month, we had over 860 requests come in to the op center. We're working on uh, getting people out and we get them through all the partners in the ecosystem, but that's, that's what they do, are the partners who we support. We basically connect, we're business to business enterprise, right? We connect the different partners in the ecosystem so they, they can collaborate well. And I would point out that, um, you know, Shala's organization is uh, what I would call the anchor species in that ecosystem or, or one of the main organizations, you know, leading the charge from the evacuate our allies. And then all the work that the different teams do has just kept the, the attention on in a way that at least we're getting some people out. It's hard, it's difficult, but we keep, we keep at it every day and I'll just leave it there. Well, give us, give us, you know, you don't have to use any specifics, but maybe give us some examples of, of what you're, what you're facing to some audience members who might not, who might not know what it's like. Sure. Uh, so because we cover the entire ecosystem, we could get calls that come from Afghanistan. Routinely, we get calls from an American 
who is advocating on behalf of Afghans who are still trapped and they might be in harm's way or they might just need food and um, some sort of shelter. And so we work with different partners that way. We also get calls uh, from people stuck in third countries. And if uh, need be, we work with different partners in the coalition to advocate either through the State Department or different consulates in order to see if we can get safe passage for them. And lastly, here in the United States, we will get calls for people who have been paroled in, which affords no legal status, uh, so they don't qualify for any benefits. And they are relying on just the goodwill of whoever they happen to have come into contact here in, in the United States and are having a hard time transitioning or might not be able to get a case with a resettlement agency. And so we try to find the organizations that might have capacity to help those cases and then make the referrals. So Matt, I want to move to you. Um, the Association of Wartime Allies released, I think, its second report from this year that has some updated numbers on the amount of applicants, SIV applicants specifically, in the pipeline and also some feedback from those still in Afghanistan. I was wondering if you could sort of walk us through some of the findings of that report. Sure. So this is going to be uh, something that the Association of Wartime Allies will be doing quarterly going forward. The report is, a, is quite illuminating. So AWA has a unique ability to survey the left behind Afghan population. They, they run a private Facebook group um, that has been curated over three, four years now that has some 30,000 Afghans in it. Um, they've all been vetted. They've had to prove that they've applied for the special immigration visa program, et cetera. And through that survey, what they've learned is, is that, you know, Afghanistan has really become hell on earth for women. It's, it's, you know, everything that we warned that this was the same evil Taliban, just better equipped has, has come to fruition. Um, they're right back to where they were, you know, in July of 2001 and in August in 2001, before September 11th. Uh, women have no place in Afghan society outside of the home, uh, fundamentally and functionally do not have any rights and are uh, living under a type of oppression that is just, as a father of a daughter, it, it sickens me. I mean, you read statistics like uh, a third of all women surveyed had reported that they had been sexually molested by the Taliban uh, since being taken over, um, propositioned in a way that, that, that they didn't want to be. You know, one of the other things that we've learned is that the food insecurity is just tremendous in Afghanistan. There is food available. There's just not enough money for anybody to purchase it. So people are so demonstrably poor um, because of the collapse of the Afghan economy that there's an ongoing act of famine. Just, we did our first survey back at the beginning of the year, and we asked questions about food insecurity. What was illuminating then was that 98% of respondents had reported something, a skipping of at least one meal in the last 10 days. That number increased to skipping more than it was, it was skipping uh, more than one meal, uh, not just in the last 10 days, but basically missing a third of all meals over each month now. So their, their food intake, what we fear has been reduced by an on average of a third for, per person. And given the ongoing you know, global food crisis because of the war in Ukraine, the food aid that normally would be reaching Afghanistan is not. And it's also not reaching it because the Taliban simply don't have very good relationships with the global community, 
on this. And they have been quietly trying to circumvent the World Food Program and its distribution of food aid. Simply put, the Taliban have also run out of money. And so they pay their, their, their fighters in 10 kilogram bags of wheat flour. They get a 10 kilogram bag of wheat flour each week. The last thing which was, was, was really illuminating was, and this is the thing that we've quite frankly been arguing with the State Department since the EVAC on, which was how many Afghan special visa applicants truly still remain in Afghanistan. And the survey is quite clear. It's the vast majority of them. Uh, it's some 160,000 people at this point. Uh, simply put, we did not evacuate the vast majority of the SIVs last August. They did not make it to the airport. They did not make it onto the plates. So Shala, I was wondering as the only lawyer here on this panel, if you could sort of help us, uh, help us go through some of those issues with, you know, differentiate SIVs from other forms of humanitarian parole for those in the United States or those eligible to apply. Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, just a little bit about some of the work that Human Rights First does with respect to our coalition building. We have uh, about 300 members of our coalition. These are different legal service providers, resettlement agencies, law firms, law schools, uh, solo practitioners, everyone who's come together really uh, around the time that Colonel Miska had identified uh, April and, and really uh, for the purposes of our program starting September, August and September, when the very first evacuees were brought to the U.S., uh, and everyone's come together to kind of answer one question, right? And that's what next, um, exactly as, as was identified, the, uh, the parole that Afghans were uh, permitted to enter uh, into the U.S. with, it's a two-year parole. It does not afford any permanent rights in the U.S., right? So in the two years that they're here, they have a work permit, social security card, and, uh, you know, the right to live, the right to live in the U.S., uh, frankly, and without fear of deportation, but what happens after those two years? And so it's really the legal community that's come together with, I have to say, all, all, all pro bono partners, right? No one really here is making making a dime off of off of uh, off of this population in particular, um, and everyone's uh, trying to figure out what the best uh, use of our resources is here. Um, absent an Afghan Adjustment Act, which I'm sure we'll touch upon a little bit later, uh, which would be a law that would grant permanent residence to all Afghan evacuees here. Absent that law. We've got to now get creative and uh, make sure that all the 85,000 Afghan nationals that are here uh, apply for the uh, legal remedies that they're eligible for and, and apply in a timely manner. So uh, the two biggest applications that we're seeing among this population is the special immigrant visa and, and asylum. Um, to put it really sort of broadly, the special immigrant visa was created in 2006 for Afghans in 2009, and it was meant for interpreters who served alongside U.S. troops. Um, in Afghanistan, who'd served a certain uh, a certain period of time, uh, those conditions have been relaxed, thankfully, and uh, over the course of over, over a decade that, that it's been that it's been a reality. And now it requires one uh, to have served one year of of good of, of faithful service um, to a U.S. government entity in Afghanistan, and you have to have the the requisite documents to prove your your time there. So. We've come upon a number of challenges, a lot of which uh, the podcast covers really, really well, Bryce, uh, with respect to the human, the human resources letter, the supervisor letter, the fact that a lot of uh, organizations and companies there disappeared without a trace. And so getting all those documents is really critical. And for those folks that were not able to and are not able to locate their supervisors, it's become a near impossibility to become eligible for SIV. Um, everyone else then would be eligible for asylum and asylum law uh, applies to all nationals of all countries in the U.S. And for that, you have to you have to demonstrate a reasonable fear of persecution should you be returned back to your home country on a variety of bases. 
And among Afghan evacuees, we're seeing the most common uh, reasons for applying for asylum is in fact political opinion. You've got ethnic and religious minorities that are evacuated here, folks that are members of particular social groups in particular, those that uh, were Afghan military, Afghan pilots, Afghan police, judges, lawyers, members of the Afghan government, human rights activists, you name it, you've got, you know, all of civil society really that fled Afghanistan, those that were really the lucky ones, those that could, um, and they're here and, and they've all absent a larger law that would enable them to apply for a green card, have to individually apply for asylum. The asylum system is, is incredibly backlogged. We've got 600,000 cases just at the asylum office right now. And if you include those cases that are in the immigration courts, you've got a million and a half. Um, so again, you know, to think about, especially in light of the information uh, just shared uh, by Matt about how the overwhelming majority of SIVs are actually left behind, are we as a legal community use, utilizing our resources in the best way, right? Wouldn't it make sense for us to come together and work on those applications for those folks that are not yet in the U.S. instead of, instead of doing all of this for those folks that, that are, but here we are still, we've, we've got to work on those until the law is passed. So one other thing, Shala, that I've heard you speak about is really the lack of international coordination. You just covered some of the more domestic legal issues, but I was wondering if you could speak to that because a lot of people flee Afghanistan and then are left to try and apply from somewhere else like Pakistan. So I was wondering if you could talk about that. Sure, I'd be happy to. So um, again, we're speaking about folks that have legal pathways to come to the U.S. These would be F SIV applicants, their derivatives, uh, both those that are abroad and those that are here as we're processing the 85,000 applications, uh, applications for 85,000 folks that are here. We are thankfully getting approvals uh, just to give folks an idea. Uh, and there's a 99% asylum grant rate for Afghan evacuees currently, which again speaks to the fact that is, is, this, is this whole operation futile at this point if, if everyone basically is, is being granted asylum. But nonetheless, uh, for those folks that have legal mechanisms to come to the US by and large, the only way out of Afghanistan is through Pakistan, right? And that's really contingent on the Pakistani government issuing visas. Uh, Pakistani law requires all folks who exit the country legally to remain in lawful status the entire time. And what that means right now is uh, reissuing 30-day visas. And not, not all folks who are requesting visas, by the way, are being granted visas. But those folks that are lucky enough, they're getting visas and they've got to renew them in 30 days. Ordinarily, UNHCR operates out of, out of Pakistan to register Afghans. They've been doing so since the 80s. As we know, the country has been in pretty much constant conflict since the early 80s. Uh, but right now, that's also been at a standstill. So Afghans cannot register themselves with UNHCR. Uh, a benefit of that would have been, as long as you're registered with UNHCR, you're in legal status because you're, you're in the process of applying for um, asylum protection under, under UNHCR. But that's no longer a reality, right? So visas are, number one, not guaranteed, number two, not renewed. Additionally, you've got a lot of Afghans that are being attacked on the street in, in, in Pakistan for a variety of reasons. Think about, again, the kinds of groups of folks that are, that are fleeing. You've got LGBT persons, persons that have perhaps abandoned Islam or uh, espouse secular views, secular, whether that be uh, personal secular views or political secular views. Um, and those folks that, that frankly have, a, that have political opinions that are contrary to the status quo in Pakistan. Um, so you've got a lot of individualized sort of uh, risks uh, to Afghans that, that, are, that are in Pakistan right now. And um, the processing time is, is just simply, I, I would say, unacceptable. You've got folks that have been waiting since literally the start of the evacuation with valid, again, valid ways of processing to the US 
uh, come into the US that still have no movement on their cases. Um, it's really, I would say, the equivalent of imagine North Korea and South Korea at war with each other, right? And then we ask the South Koreans to consular process in China, right? It's, it's that, right? It's how, how safe do you feel as an Afghan going to Pakistan to apply for a visa to come to the US and it's Pakistan that's overtly and covertly funding the Taliban and have done so for, right, for decades. Um, really, what I think this really shows us is not only to make the, uh, the US embassy in Islamabad work better and work for our allies and for right, the family members of US citizens and other folks who are vulnerable, but really to create a new, a new system, right? To create a, to designate a consulate somewhere in the world that whose job would be to just process Afghans. And I would really propose here, we have some really strong and reliable allies in the Balkans, in particular Albania and Kosovo, right? Both of those states right now do uh, processing for evacuees. There's talk about expanding some of those operations. You know, I think it would be a, a really a win-win situation, not only for those countries to pay it forward because uh, we have a lot of goodwill in the Balkans as compared to a lot of places in the world. And, I, and we found that they've been quite eager to assist the US and, and the US allies there. Um, and really a, a safe place where Afghans can go complete their consular processing, do the interview, do the background checks, do the medical exams, do everything we all need to do to make sure that they um, enter the country lawfully with the right status and they're able to reunite with their families here. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And uh, Colonel Miska, how has that lack of international coordination affected the Evacuate Our Allies Coalition's work? It's been challenging in a lot of ways. And I don't have a lot of specifics in this area, but what happened early on was there were a lot of well-meaning organizations that stepped up and helped get Afghans out into third countries. And then what happened was uh, there was no follow-on destination. And so there really hasn't been a coordinated effort internationally to try to resolve just that issue alone, let alone the other things that uh, Shala was just bringing up, right? And so it's a challenge, and especially when the world is distracted, as you know, they are very distracted by, we are distracted by Ukraine, and that has drawn the media attention, it has drawn the political attention of our European partners who were very much a part of NATO. And so, what I would love to see, and I, we've got partners in Germany and France and, and some of the other European countries who have really advocated for protecting our soft networks, right? For, for helping those who serve alongside of us in conflict zones. Uh, but the systems are very uneven. The responses are uneven as well. And so you'll see certain countries 
as Shala pointed out, that are very receptive and help within their capacity. Uh, and then other countries don't have that level of warmth. And so you end up uh, with a really uneven playing field out there. But international cooperation could go a long way. So I want to move to the Afghan Adjustment Act that Shala mentioned. Um, and it would really touch on if that legislation were to, to pass, which we'll get into the status of in a second, but it would really touch on a lot of the issues that you have all been speaking about here today. So my first question, and Matt, I'm going to hand this to you, is, you know, what is the status of the Afghan Adjustment Act? And uh, for Shala, what would it do? What would it do to affect all of this? And what sort of the what are some of the proposals that, that people are seeing? So I guess let me flip that around. Let's start with Shala. What would it do? And then we'll go to Matt with the status. Sure, happy to answer that. So the Afghan Adjustment Act, as, as it's being proposed, would allow all Afghans who were evacuated here by the US government to be able to apply for a green card after being here for one year. So on the one year anniversary of their entry, um, they could apply directly for a green card. Um, all applicants for a green card have to go through what they call biometrics. So they run fingerprints and make sure that you don't have any, any outstanding criminal records or you know, just generally a law abiding, a law -abiding person in the US. Uh, of course, they've already gone through background checks, right, in order to come here in the first place through the evacuation, really lengthy background checks. Uh, but really what it would do is it would cut out the middleman. It would cut out the need to apply for asylum, for them to show an individualized harm, an individualized uh, threat. Uh, it would cut out the need to try to locate now uh, he, uh, supervisors for folks that were SIV eligible, try to locate these phantom companies that, that existed and maybe haven't existed for over a decade or so. Um, and it would just allow, allow folks to apply for a green card and really be uh, sure of the fact that uh, they can continue their lives uh, or start their lives anew here in the U.S. without any additional legal barriers. There would, it, would, it would eliminate the need for, or the fear really, for being deported back to Afghanistan and potentially back uh, in harm's way and back in the hands of the Taliban. And Matt, the status, what is the status of the Afghan Adjustment Act and what had been the hopes a couple months ago for the Afghan Adjustment Act? Sure. Well, I guess I'll start off with the, the hope had been that we were going to get it passed uh, in what's called the Ukraine Supplemental. So the, the, the law that Congress passed uh, about a month ago that funded our aid efforts to Ukraine. So this is a lot of inside political baseball here, but in an election year, Congress really doesn't get a whole lot done. Um, a lot of people don't like being put on the record in an election year for, for votes because they feel that it might make voters mad at them. And it's not something I'm a big fan of, by the way, but that's just the way our system of government works. So there's a couple of must-pass bills, however, that Congress has to pass every year. Um, these are spending bills, right? The, the one's called the Omnibus Bill. It's the sort of the, the, the law that funds the, 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 the government for a fiscal year. The other is the National Defense Authorization Act. It funds the military. There's the Senate Foreign Ops Bill, which funds the State Department. And in this case, um, Congress decided because of the war in Ukraine that they had to pass a must-pass bill to give the president authority to spend billions of dollars in Ukraine. So we tried to get the Afghan Adjustment Act attached to that. Uh, it failed because of Chuck Grassley of Iowa. Senator Grassley, for whatever reason, hates immigration. And he does not like this population of people. And he feels that the Biden administration illegally used humanitarian parole to bring the Afghans who were evacuated last August into the United States. He believes that the Biden administration did it as political top cover 
for its failures in Afghanistan. And I really don't care what his reasonings are for voting against it. I wish he would understand that by refusing to allow this bill to come up for a vote, and, and unfortunately in the Senate, an individual senator can, can do that. They can put what's called a hold on a bill and uh, by and large prevent it from ever coming to a vote, which he has all but done. He's hurting American national security in the future. He, he's hurting our credibility. He's hurting our ability to recruit future allies. You know, we've already done just about as much damage as we can to our credibility around the world by abandoning these people in the first place. But the fact is, is that we were able to get some out and the idea that we would now put them in jeopardy and potentially one day even deport them uh, is important to me. And if it was to come to pass, I don't know how any ally in the future could ever look to us and trust us and take us at our word when we said that we're going to have their back if needed. So the current status is this. There is a bipartisan group of senators and, and House representatives, Republicans and Democrats on both sides, that want to vote on this thing. And if it came up for a fair vote, I think it would pass. The problem is, is that right now, Senator Grassley has his objections, and it seems to be until he can be mitigated and brought into the fold, there is a hesitancy to even bring it up for a form, try to even bring it up and introduce it formally into Congress because they don't, the last thing anyone wants us to have happen is that it, it gets introduced for a vote and then it goes nowhere and dies on a vine, right? People really only want this thing to be officially put on the record when it's going to be a must-pass bill. And so to that end, we've really been letting our counterparts, the staff and the, the members of the United States Senate who have been leading this really lead on that process. And, and we've been following their guidance, which is why you don't have a bill number attached to this thing, while there's no legislative text, because the reality is, is that they're still trying to figure out what is going to be the acceptable text that everyone can agree to pass. And they don't want to introduce anything until they have that solidified. Um, what I will tell you, uh, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring this up. One other thing that the bill does do, and this is this for me is, is, a, is a massive important thing, and it was illuminated in the AWA report, and forgive me, I didn't mention it. There is a coming crisis in the SIV application program right now. Simply put, applicants are running up to, into the provision that requires them to have an in-person interview at the U.S. Embassy in Kabul in order to be given an SIV. There is no more U.S. Embassy in Kabul. So these in-person interviews cannot take place. And so every applicant in the SIV program is eventually going to run into a problem where their, their application can advance no further. The AAA, the Afghan Adjustment Act would grant the State Department the authority and the ability to conduct these interviews elsewhere in other embassies around the world, potentially online in some sort of secure Zoom, or while we don't have an embassy in Taiwan, we have a U.S. interest section at somebody else's embassy, we would ostensibly they could set up a U.S. interest office at the embassy of Qatar, for example, or the United Arab Emirates, which has formally recognized the Taliban as the legitimate government of Afghanistan. All of this is to say is that my friend Sean Van Diver is a really good point that he likes to, to sort of browbeat members of Congress with, and I would be remiss if I didn't say it now, which is that, you know, a year ago, last August, it seemed to be just about everybody in this country really cared about Afghans and the lives of Afghans. And that, that makes sense. We've had for 20 years, successive presidents 
and administrations from both sides of the aisle tell us, the American people, that we should really care about Afghans in their lives. And you know what? The messaging worked. Americans really seem to care about Afghans in their lives, and, and, they, and they don't like what they're seeing right now. I wish then that, that the goodwill that was expressed last August would be allowed to carry over to the Afghan Adjustment Act, because I don't think anybody who was involved in, in the EVAC last summer was doing it on, with the belief that the people that they were helping get to safety might one day have that safety taken away from them and the rug pulled from out from underneath them. And that's why the Afghan Adjustment Act is so critically important, because if we don't pass it, there is a future, there is a future nightmare scenario where a, a new administration comes to power that doesn't feel as the Biden administration and doesn't see these people as welcome in this country and moves to deport them. All right, let's move to audience questions. Melissa from the Global Advocacy Group asks that she would, or she says she would appreciate hearing how dramatically different the humanitarian parole situation between Ukrainians and Afghans is. Um, so Shala, let's start with you. Sure, I'd be happy to. I'll, I'll start out by explaining a little bit about um, what humanitarian parole is and, and, and the numbers specific to Afghans. So humanitarian parole has been uh, a, around for quite a while. It's again, open to nationality, uh, persons of all different nationalities. And uh, it's really used in emergency situations to allow an emergency really entrance permit into the US. Um, it was actually encouraged uh, following the events of August of last year, of August 2021, with the, with the collapse of the Afghan government and the takeover by the Taliban. It was encouraged by members of Congress and the administration as a pathway for US citizens to petition for their family members, friends, loved ones, right? Uh, American citizens that worked, for example, alongside um, Afghans in, in, in Afghanistan uh, as a way to get them to safety. Um, to date, about 45,000 uh, humanitarian parole applications were filed for Afghans, and that was at $575 per application. And you needed an application for every single man, woman, and child that wanted uh, to apply for humanitarian parole. And that's starting, of course, since about August of last year. Of those 45,000, only about 5% have been decided. And of those five, 85% have been denied. So we've got uh, really appalling numbers. You know, the, the requirements by which uh, one had to even satisfy uh, to be eligible for humanitarian parole for an Afghan, uh, again, were that you had to have shown individualized harm. So really a harm that is well beyond what's required in asylum. So it would be Matt Zeller is wanted by the Taliban and his name had to have been published in a U.S. government report in the New York Times, in Amnesty International, or a really reputable source as being you know, a, a person of interest and, and would be persecuted by the Taliban, again, by name, right? That, that is not the requirements that even, even asylum requires. The person also needed to have left Afghanistan to begin with. So they were not processing any cases for Afghans that were still stuck in Afghanistan. And the reason given was, again, because they needed a consular process and there's no U.S. embassy in Afghanistan at the moment. Compared to that, to the u for u program or United for Ukrainians, for that program, the U.S. government has promised 100,000 slots. I believe they've assigned about a third of those already, and that's just within the about two months since the program's been rolled out. Um, there's no fee for that application. No need to be outside of Ukraine. Um, everything can be done uh, through a, a website on, on your telephone. Um, you don't need to show any individualized harm, just that you've been displaced by the Russian conflict. Um, no consular processing, no interview, 
Everything's again uh, done online and the travel documents emailed right to your phone. We're hearing reports of folks who have filed uh, humanitarian parole under the U4U program and within eight days have arrived in the US. So again, comparing to over, was it now 10 months? 10 months for Afghans, the vast majority have, have not even been decided. So it's really, I think, uh, illustrated to us that we did need and we do need a, a better processing to bring large numbers of people to the US uh, safely and, and very quickly. And, and we need to do the same for our Afghan allies, right? There's no reason why we can't learn from the, the U4U program and now implement that um, to the Afghans who, by the way, we've got a number of clients that literally have died, have been killed uh, waiting for the, the outcome of humanitarian pool. So to say that they're at harm's way is really an understatement here. I think, I don't see there's any reason why we can't implement the U4U program directly to the Afghan population. Kristen asks a question that is, somewhat difficult to answer, but I think is important to as we go forward, which is how could we have moved more efficiently to get SIV holders out of the country faster without causing the Afghan government to collapse even faster? And this is a question that a lot of people on this panel have tried to answer. And, and maybe I'll ask more, I'll start, I'll start with Matt, which is, you know, what were advocates saying a year ago in order to, in order to try to answer that question? So in the alternate universe that I wish I lived in, where we were listened to, the following occurred. We wrote a report, we being uh, Kim Stifuri, myself, and Chris Purdy of Vets for American Ideals, over the winter of 2020 into January of 2021, that we quietly delivered to the administration, in which we recommended that they begin the immediate evacuation of every single SIV applicant, regardless of where they were in the processing line and that they begin moving them to Guam where we could use Guam as a lily pad from which we could then figure out how we were going to resettle them in the United States. We based this on the evacuation of Saigon in 1975 which used Guam as a lily pad. We recommended that it begin immediately for the following reason. In January of 2021 we had 2,000 U.S. military troops in Afghanistan and we controlled every single airfield. We had the ability, because it was also not fighting season at that point, and the Afghan military wasn't actively engaged in a, in a, in a, in a running gun battle in most places like with the Taliban, we had the ability to then quietly begin going out into the hinterland, into the villages where most of these people lived, bringing them back to these smaller bases, and we could have done this in a methodical, orderly way that, quite frankly, we're talking about a population of under 200,000 people here. You wouldn't have noticed it. If it had been done in secret and quiet, we would have been able to move these people out without most of the Afghan people getting wise to it, without creating or inciting a panic. I'm convinced of it. But there wasn't political will in our White House to do that. And that's why it didn't take place. It wasn't that we didn't have the capabilities. It wasn't that, the, and trust me, and talking with the folks I know in the US military, they wanted to do this. It was a lack of the political will at the highest levels of our government to get this done. Uh, Colonel Miska, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I would just um, offer that the entire, well, not the entire veteran community, but a large majority of the veteran community really rose up as we saw the train wreck coming and partnered with organizations like Human Rights First and Humanitarians writ large, which, you know, we're not usual bedfellows in advocacy, right? And and we were really strongly recommending to do something, right? And I didn't want to get around to saying exactly what it should be. I know 
our military if tasked can plan for contingencies and and do that but it really the writing was on the wall when as uh, matt noted we pulled out the anchor species right the, the anchor species in that ecosystem was really the u.s military of which the contracting community was around it Con the contracting community was traumatized by what happened they were coming to our coalition asking what can we do to get our our afghan employees out and so it's just it's something we've got to get better at in the future we can i know we can there are policy options out there that we can pursue and um, hopefully we'll have the political will to do that and our next question comes from walter who asks did we do any better in the vietnam departure um which that's a complicated question um and i would recommend the book honorable exit by thurston clark to walter uh, if he wants to learn sort of more about how that went but colonel miska You've you've studied this issue. You I mean you've not only worked on it, but you've studied it academically. Maybe sort of help us give give us a sense of how we did in Vietnam. And you mentioned the, the Kurdish evacuation earlier. Yeah. The, so um, <laughs> it's hard to make comparisons like this because there is always trauma, right? Every single Afghan case that has got here to the United States is still associated with trauma. They weren't able to bring their adult children. They weren't. You know, and so the same applies to Vietnam. And but what I would say is that there were some major distinctions. 80% of the Vietnamese refugees went by sea. This was a point we kept making back in May, June, and July that name the seaports in Afghanistan and I will, you know, go get my ticket because it's going to be bad when we lose the airfields. And when that happened, it really precluded a lot of options that we could have exercised. And so it, it went from a comparison to Vietnam, at least to many people feeling it was worse as we watched the zombie apocalypse outside the gate of Hamid Karzai International Airport, as we saw people cling to wheel wells. And so it, it was really, I would just say that for the veterans that I know who were involved in this, uh, for me personally, it was harder in many ways than when I was in combat in Baghdad. Um, so our last audience question before some closing, um, some closing thoughts comes from Fritz, who asks, what can the U.S. learn from various allied nations about how they handled their partners, whether Afghans or, or other conflict zones who needed evacuation and resettlement? And before we jump into some answers, I will say that the University of York came out with a report last week or maybe two weeks ago that sought to answer this exact question and had a number of metrics that compared the U.S. to a bunch of a bunch of different allied nations. So I direct you to that report, but maybe Shala or Matt, if you have any, any quick thoughts on that. I think the Aussies do it best in terms of resettlement after the fact. Like if you can get into Australia and you're not sent to their an immigration prison island that they run, uh, and you're actually welcoming an Australian society. They, they do a, a really wonderful job with housing, employment, uh, et cetera. You know, I think the big frustration for, I heard from folks who were over there amongst the American military was again, the frustration that they had in watching other allied militaries be able to leave the airport and go out and physically move people through Kabul beyond past Taliban checkpoints onto the airport and provide that level of security that they wanted to be able to do for their citizens. A lot of people don't realize the American military was forbidden from leaving 
the, the compound. They could not leave the airport during the evacuation. We were wholly dependent on other nations' militaries either moving our own citizens or our Afghan allied partners who are still in uniform, still showing up for duty, meaning soldiers of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan who are still doing their jobs for us, helping to move people through Taliban lines and stuff to get them to the airport. By the way, those people were amongst the people that we evacuated who now are in desperate need of the Afghan Adjustment Act to pass. Let's be clear that, that in the evac, it wasn't just civilians. We got out members of the Afghan military who continued to function in their jobs all the way up until the very last moment. And the idea that we would one day turn our back on them is just important to me. But um, I, I, you know, I think there's a lot of lessons learned. I, I agree. The report is fantastic. I highly recommend folks give it a read. And Shala, do you have anything to add to that before our final closing thoughts? Yeah, I would just add, you know, uh, Canada has a uh, private sponsorship program for immigrants. And I think uh, that this is really a time to roll something like that out, right? Because of, of all the reasons that were, were highlighted by my, my co-panelists, there's a lot of goodwill and a lot of interest by everyday Americans to bring Afghans to safety. And I think a program like Canada's that would allow a certain number of Canadian citizens to come together and petition their, their local representatives for specific, uh, specific immigrants, uh, I think would do wonders and literally save lives here. All right, so for our, our final question, something that Max and I have found when, while we were making the show was that a lot of private citizens, such as yourselves, have really stepped up and tried to fill the void in a lot of senses that US immigration bureaucracy and, and the government have really left wide open. So my question to, to all the panelists is, you know, if you're someone who's watched this, whether they're lawyer or civilian veteran, and they want to get involved in some way, do something um, about this, you know, what would you what would you tell them to do? And I'll start with Colonel Miska, then we'll go to Shala, and then we'll close out with Matt. So this is a great question, Bryce, because it's really, I think a lot of, of Americans struggle with how to thank their veterans. And because this resonated so strongly with the veteran community, if you want to really help us, help us welcome our Afghan partners who served in conflict with us, who are fleeing violence. And you can do that in a lot of different ways. You can if you know a veteran, reach out, see if they're in touch with anybody and assist along those lines. But the resettlement agencies have local affiliates throughout the country in many different areas. You can uh, just Google, how can I help an Afghan refugee? Figure out where the resettlement agencies are in your uh, neck of the woods and give them a call because they all need help, whether it's through volunteering, uh, resources, or if you're fortunate enough to be involved in some sort of sponsorship program. And Shala, um, you know, if there are any attorneys watching or law students or something like that, what would you tell them? Sure. So Human Rights First uh, would love to have more pro bonos involved in our, in our legal efforts to not only do screenings for Afghan individuals who are in the U.S., but also assist with application preparation. That's applications for a green card. We now have TPS available, temporary protected status, and other forms of uh, relief not only for the individual who's here, but God willing, one day soon, so they can petition also for their family members who are still stuck abroad. And lastly, for uh, direct representation with asylum applications, um, you can find us on the We the Action platform and look up Human Rights First and Welcome Legal Alliance and look out for opportunities there. Great. And Matt, the final word. I've been involved in this work since 2013. And what I've learned 
is that the the fundamental difference between somebody really truly integrating and, and being properly resettled in this country or ending up in endemic poverty is the degree to which and the speed at which we can pair an Afghan with a veteran. That is to the, as Steve has called it, the, the anchor species in this relationship is the veteran. There's just not a better advocate for an Afghan to help come into the American community and, and, and you know, start their new lives here in a productive and fruitful way. I would also argue, you know, we've touched on a little bit, veterans have suffered a tremendous moral injury with the end of the Afghan war and, and, and how it was, how it ended. The best way that I have found to address and, and heal from that moral injury is to assist in the resettlement of these people. It's in a way, if you served with them overseas, we're flipping the script where they were our cultural ambassadors and guides for us overseas. We now get to be that for them here. And there is just something that is deeply healing about that relationship. So to that end, I'm in, I'm actively involved in a process right now with the, the Iraq and Afghan Veterans of America, IADA. Uh, we're building out a national program where we're going to partner veterans with all the Afghans who have been resettled and try to just give them a, a person within the community who can be someone there to always answer questions. But more important, the resettlement services that are provided to these Afghans only go so far and they're limited. And what we're trying to do is build relationships that will last a lifetime. So to that end, if you're a veteran who is interested in, in being involved in this, I encourage you to, you can email me, it's matt.zeller at iava.org, and uh, we'd love to get you involved with this effort. Thanks. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much to our panelists. Thanks for having us, Bryce. A special thank you to the Brookings Institution for hosting that panel. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available to only our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Allies, The Aftermath, Rational Security, and Chatter. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. You can also buy Lawfare swag at thelawfarestore.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.